0: Yes, my name's David. I'm the pastor of the church. We are so glad you're here. I hope uh, you enjoy part of our Christmas celebration uh, today, and it goes on next Christmas next week, which is Christmas Eve. Christmas is uh, seven days away. It's hard to believe, and I hope you have a great time and a great time celebrating the birth of our Lord. We're in a series entitled, "Yeah, that's the title of it." Pretty that's a good time on your kids part there. <laughs> So excited about the message today, I'm glad. Here, y'all are a little embarrassed that I looked at you, aren't you? Yeah, I passed her single you out That's okay, it's fine. She's, glad she's in a good mood. Uh, what was the name of my series? Uh, the Day of the Lord Forever Changed. That's the name of the series. Because when Jesus came... The world changed. I mean, it really did. And uh, the thing that I really want to stress in this series is that the birth of Jesus is a turning point in human history. It was a pivotal event. It signified something was about to occur. Something different was happening. Indeed, the life has never been, never been the same. We began in a series, which is in the book of Luke, we began a couple of weeks ago with a message entitled, The Day the Lord uh, Spoke Again, and uh, you know, the Lord had, had not revealed anything new for over 400 years, and then with the coming of, of John, the forerunner to the Christ, he's saying the Messiah is coming, so the day the Lord spoke again was important. Last week, we saw uh, the message the day uh, the Lord revealed his plan, where he shared with us. That uh, we see that he came to Mary, and we see through Mary that he shared with us uh, that the Christ was coming through this young girl. And we see the virgin birth and the importance of the virgin birth to our faith and the importance of the virgin birth in terms of, of our salvation. Uh, today we come and continue along in this series with the day the Lord received his praise, down in Luke chapter 1, because with the coming of Jesus. It's the coming of praise, unbelievable praise. And here's what I want you to see, really, from the message today. That at Christmas, we praise God for who he is and for what he did and does. We pray God, praise God for who he is and what he did in what he does. We come to the song of Mary. It's really a psalm, like an Old Testament psalm, uh, similar to the song of Hannah. Uh, it, it's a beautiful reflection of her life, her thoughts in relationship to what's going on in her life. Kind of has basically two parts to it, almost like two stanzas or verses. And so we come today to talk about Mary's song. Look at verse one, which deals with the who. The who the song is about. There's a lot of People that inspire songs. Now, I'm not, I'm not, because this is a younger crowd, I'll use this against a little bit. I'm not a Taylor Swift person, fan. I don't know any of her songs, maybe one that I can recognize. But I hear that you never want to be a guy who dates Taylor Swift because eventually you're going to be the source of one of her songs and it's never good. I grew up in the 70s, you know, Carly uh, Simon had a magnificent hit, You're So Vain. Everyone wondered, who was it written about? It kind of narrowed down to three people. Was it written about Warren Beatty, which I think ultimately it was, or Mick Jagger, or was it written about James Taylor? Who was the song about? But no one in contemporary culture has ever had more songs probably written about them than Patty Boyd. You may not know who Patty Boyd is. There's no song with the name Patty in it, really. She was married to George Harrison of the Beatles. And she was the inspiration behind the song, Something. Um, and it's a beautiful song. And the thing about it was George Harrison's best friend, Eric Clapton, was in love with her. And Eric Clapton wrote an all-time rock and roll classic about her called Layla. Don't know why he went from Patty to Layla. But he did. Harrison wrote another song about her. Clapton would write another song after she and him got married. At one point, they ended up getting married. He wrote the song Wonderful Tonight. And in uh, all told, Patty Boyd had three different guys write a song about her, including Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones. And they wrote 10 songs. Three guys wrote 10 songs about her. Ladies, how many songs have you ever written about you? <laughs> now, think about it. Some of you are here with your husband. boyfriend or whatever, look at that guy and ask him, why have you never written a song about me? You take that five seconds and just wonder why he has never written a song about you at all. Yeah, some of you are looking and uh, yeah, you're getting looked at because you can't write a song anyways, dude. But the one to whom all songs of praise is really due, of course, is God. And Mary wrote her song about God because of what God was doing in her life and because of who God was. And we see in verse 46. Begins this way, and Mary said. Now, normally we, we call this, or the tradition kind of calls this song, this hymn, the Magnificat. It's based on our Catholic friends, based on their Latin version, you know, the idea of the magnificence of God. And normally we think of Mary wrote this song because of what God was doing in her life, because she was going to give birth to the Messiah, and it's to a form of praise, and it is. But you've got to realize the total situation Mary was in. I mean, she, she was carrying this unbelievable event, this supernatural birth. But Mary was about 15. As I shared last week, she was engaged. And you got engaged between about 14 or 15. So we'll split the difference. Say she was about, about 14 or 16. We'll split the difference to say she was 15. I mean, here she is. She's 15. And this is an unplanned pregnancy. I mean, this, this, is, this is an unwed child, basically a teenager. Now, we live in 21st century America. And if a 15-year-old gets pregnant, while it's not ideal, you know, the wheels don't come off everything. And the place doesn't go nuts. But back then, I mean, so much purity, virginity was everything. And basically, she was going to be considered an adulteress. That she had an affair. She was impure. And she was going to have this child because Joseph wasn't the father. And while you could, as a young girl, as any woman, could be put to death for adultery, it didn't really happen back then, but she probably was facing some unbelievable difficulties. We know from Matthew's account that before the angel spoke to Joseph, he was going to put her away privately, quietly, he was going to divorce her. Um, That would be the least of her problems. I mean, she was going to have to go home and live with her family. I mean, you're a Jewish father back then, and you gave your teenage daughter a way to be married, and then she turns up pregnant. I mean, that is the height of scandal, and no one's going to buy the line about the Holy Spirit. No one's buying that line unless an angel appears to you. And then if you're Joseph, you might. Now, Mary's mother might eventually buy it. Eventually, in time, her family would come to believe it. But, I mean, she's looking. She has no idea what's going to happen she's going to probably be shunned by her community, by her family. She's going to be mocked and ridiculed, labeled as an adulteress for her entire life. And if Joseph won't marry her, probably no one will marry her. She's facing all of this. She says, my soul exalts the Lord. Now verse 46 and verse 47 are probably parallel statements. And they're emphatic. They emphasize and reinforce each other. The soul is who you really are. Now, Mary would have given this song in Hebrew. And when Luke, either from talking to her or close family members to her to get what the song was, would have put it in Greek because it has such a fullness as he writes his gospel in Greek. So he uses the word soul, which speaks of the inner self. It's the real you. Some of you talk about wanting to find your soulmate, that person to spend your life with. When, whenever something happens, what you immediately think of, or your first reaction before you process anything, that comes from your soul. That is who you really are. My soul exalts, it magnifies, it lifts up the Lord. And if speaking of the Lord, she's talking about the, the, the Lord as she knows from what we call the Old Testament. Remember, she's Jewish. And to her, the Lord is Yahweh, the personal God of Israel. She says, I'm right now finding out that I'm going to have the Messiah, knowing that I may go through some unbelievable times of suffering, that I may be ridiculed and mocked, who knows what will happen. I may be cast out on the streets. I am going to lift up our Lord. In verse 47, it continues when she says, And my spirit has rejoiced in my God. My spirit is rejoiced in God. Spirit is like the soul, rejoice like his You know, God like the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God who is my Savior. And normally when we think of the word Savior, we almost always think of it as Jesus. I mean, that's how we present him as our Savior. I mean, that's how I present Jesus to people who need him. You need someone to save you from your rebellion and your sin. The word Savior comes from the concept of being rescued to do what you cannot do. Mary is not at a point, you know, in life where they're thinking that Jesus is the Savior, though he is. And she, you know, in the name Jesus, the God saves, the Lord saves, knows that. But ultimately, it's the recognition that God's the one who saves. Now, whether she's thinking from the historical perspective that God has always saved them, or thinking the future, or just thinking about her own life, she praises the God who is the one who saves. In verse 48, she says this, for he has regard for the humble state of his monslave. The word regard means to think about. He's thinking about me. Now, she considers herself a servant. The word bond slave, slave, servant, same thing, the Greek word. There's no difference really back then between someone who was a servant and someone who was a slave. It was the same social status. She was the bond slave. She was the one who served. It was a sign of humility, and she came from a humble background. He has regard. God thinks about me. No one thought about servants back then. No one cared about the humble, the poor. And people didn't worry or think about them. And she says, but God thinks about me. Behold, from this time on, all generations will count. Be blessed. The idea of generation is really the idea of people. Now, she's thinking of Israel. She's thinking every Jewish girl wanted to be the one who had the Messiah. I mean, that was was like the ultimate thing for all women to do. And so because she's going to have the Messiah, she's going to think, For all time, for all of the kingdom, from now on, because the Messiah is going to come and establish this kingdom of the Jews, that's how they all thought, I'll be the one they think about. Now, she's true. She would be the one counted blessed, but it's not about from the Jews. It's from the Christians, who predominantly, by the way, are Gentiles. We do consider her blessed. I mean, some of our Christian friends, more so than others, but we all recognize the importance of Mary. Now, the word blessed is important. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you have Jesus giving the expectations of what it means to be his follower. He begins that message by saying, blessed are, blessed are, eight times. To be blessed speaks of a condition. Now, sometimes people want to say happy. And I realize technically you can translate it happy. The problem with the word happy and our concept of happiness in 21st century America is happiness is based on circumstances. At Christmas, some of you are happy. Some of you are sad. There are some who are going to have to put a lot of children's gifts together. Dads, you're going to be sad when that occurs. You're going to say, Santa, what were you thinking? And bringing that 12,000-piece Barbie doll house, which I had to put together one time because Santa didn't do it, and the daughter played with it for five minutes, and that was the end of it. Some of you are going to be happy with what you get. When your family leaves, some of you are going to be Happy. (laughs) Happiness is based on circumstance. The word blessed, though, is a word that speaks of the inner condition of your life. It is not subject to what happens to outward circumstance. It speaks of who you are in relationship to God. I am blessed. And everyone's going to know that when it comes to God, I have been blessed. Verse 49 says, for the mighty one has done great things to me. The mighty one means the powerful one. It speaks of the one who has unbelievable power, raw ability. God has the word for, 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 for mighty one. The word for power speaks of the ability that exists. And here, it's only of God. He has the power to do the impossible, which is take a young virgin and have her be pregnant with the Messiah. And holy is his name. The word name, the concept of name, speaks of the character of someone. For us, a name is a designation. I'm designated as David, that's my name. But back then, it represented the real character, and God's character is holy. Now, one of the things that I stress all the time is that the holiness of God is a central characteristic. That's how we understand God is holy. Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, in, in the third Sunday in February, I'm preaching from that passage, God is holy. Now, the word holy has the idea, it comes from the concept of being cut, of separate, not separate from, but separate towards. If I could use this somewhat crude illustration, um, I can remember a Christmas when um, my wife insisted, well, well, my mom had us for Christmas. And so Debbie and I went, and uh, mom was going to have a lot of family over. And so I said, okay, a mom made a phenomenal dessert. And I knew because of all those scoundrels and ravenous wolves that are at her house, I may mean, not get that dessert. So I told Debbie, I said, baby, in exchange for me coming to my own mother's house, you go cut a piece of that pie and you hide it. <laughs> she separated it not from the rest of the pie. She separated it to the one to whom she loved more than anything at that particular moment. That's the idea of being holy, is to be cut, to be separated to himself. And it carries the idea of of righteous, of purity. He is the holy. And all of the attributes of God comes from this. And then she says this, probably quoting from Psalm 103 in verse 50. Here's what she says. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. For all the people experience his mercy. Now, she was thinking of Israel, and he had experienced mercy towards Israel, But she's also looking to the future. And yes, generation after generation, 2,000 years of people have experienced the mercy of God. Those who fear, those who believe, who trust him. The idea of mercy, it's a beautiful word. One of my seminary professors who was so important and influenced in my life used to say, mercy is love in action. Mercy is, is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. In sending Jesus... He gave us what we don't deserve, which is salvation, that's grace. And he didn't give us what we do deserve, which is condemnation for our sin. It's a beautiful thing. And it's just, he praises God for who he is. And get this, this is so important. As a Christian, as a follower of God, I understand, uh, Christ, I know this. God is always worthy of our praise. He's always worthy of our praise. Now, so a person who's not a follower of Christ, that's hard. For people who even who are Christians, really a name only, but I mean, that I mean you're Christian because you're not an atheist and you're not Jewish, you're not Muslim or whatever, so you're Christian. You may not get that. But understand that God is always worthy of our praise. And sometimes it's hard because some of us and some of you may be in positions in life where you think, I don't really want to praise God. Because my life's not where I really want it to be. And you may, maybe there's illness in your family, and, and, and it's the kind of illness that doesn't look like it's going to be recovered from, and it's a sense of desperation. Maybe you've lost a job, and I know people say it's horrible to lose a job at Christmas. It's horrible to lose a job anytime, really. Maybe your family life's falling apart, and your marriage is in trouble, your kids have gone some direction. Maybe there's been death in your family. Maybe there's a lot of reasons. But understand this. Regardless of your situation, Jesus will always give you a reason. Praise God. I can't speak for life outside of Jesus, but regardless of where you are, Jesus will always give you a reason to praise God. Tuesday will be two months since my wife Debbie passed. Now, I remember that Thursday morning at the hospital, it was a little bit before three, and I was there, and Tanya Simpson was with me, and I just kind of watched her, and and their breathing became less and less, and you could see the monitor, and one more breath, and one more breath. And she took a breath, and there were no more breaths. And I don't remember if I said it out loud. Tanya might remember if I just said it to myself. It was a little foggy. But I remember saying, praise you, God, because she's going to be with Jesus. And, Lord, I can't ask for more than that. She's going to spend eternity with Jesus, and I will too one day. You know, the thing when you follow Christ that you understand That we work so hard to help people come to a relationship with Jesus for all eternity. Eternity is a long time. Only part of it is spent on this earth. The rest is spent with him. And I think sometimes we forget as a follower of Jesus, as hard as life can be, for whatever reason, because of the job, because of the marriage, because of illness, because of death, because of whatever When you have Jesus, you always have a reason to praise God. Christmas reminds us of that. He is the Holy One who is our Savior, and we praise Him. Mary's song, verse 2, deals with the what. What is it God has done? So we see them. In the very next verse, verse fifty-one, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. The word "mighty deeds" is the concept of miracles, only he can do. Mary says, "With his arm, and he didn't even his whole body; he just with his arm." You know, she she's a virgin. Who is was going to have the Messiah. God can do mighty deeds. He has scattered or like seeds thrown into the wind those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. It speaks of those who were rebellion against God. I don't know what she was thinking of. Was she thinking of the past? Maybe she was thinking of the people who would oppose her, who would mock her, who would make fun and ridicule her and their proudness. But it wouldn't be long after this till a guy named Herod, who was king of Israel, or a vassal to the Romans, he was going to try to kill Mary's son and he would die unsuccessful Caiaphas later on and Pilate would kill Jesus thinking it was over only to see Jesus rise three days later listen people for 2,000 years have been trying to either destroy Jesus or those who follow him and they are scattered from the Lord the mighty one verse 52 says he has brought down rulers from their thrones rulers will be dynasties In the history of Mary's people, the Jews, he had destroyed Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He destroyed Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. We know that he would destroy the Romans. Listen, the Romans would defeat Israel. In 70 AD, Mary might have actually lived long enough to see it. She'd have been in her mid-80s. But Rome would go into Jerusalem, destroy the temple, destroy the city, destroy their religion. And then they would spend the next 250 years trying to destroy the Christian faith, only they would be unsuccessful. God brought down the Romans. He brought them down hard. He has exalted instead those who were humble. He would bring down the proud. He would bring down the rulers. But here was Mary from the humblest estates, and he would lift them up. Not to be glorified, but it means he would lift them up. Because God is always working in the lives of people, even the humblest of people, even those who struggle the most. He is always working in your life, whether you know it or not, to lift you up. And as a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that. That's what he does for you in Christ. Verse 53 says, He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty handed. Now, oftentimes the hungry or poor are in opposition to the rich. One represents those who follow God, those who don't. Now, there are rich people who have always followed God, obviously still do today. And there are poor people who reject Jesus all over the world. But it's, the idea is to kind of bring in comparison. Now, for us, it's hard to grasp this because all of us are considered rich by the standards of that day. All of us are wealthy by the world in which they lived. Back then, there were people who had literally nothing. They didn't even know if they were going to eat. They didn't even know if they could eat. And there was no government. There were no relief organizations, no charities. There were no people on the side of the road. When you begged, he would stop and give you $5. There was nothing. And so they had to depend upon God because they had nobody. Well, the rich Oftentimes oppressed the poor, and the idea was they depended upon themselves. So they were kind of classified this way. But he takes care of those who depend upon him is what it means. Verse 54 says, he has given help to Israel, his servant. The word servant means like boy servant, boy child servant. He looks at Israel as a child. He's always given them help historically. He said, in remembrance of his mercy. Because of his love and action. He remembers them. He remembers they're his people and he helps them. And here he, she is, Mary, about to give birth to the Messiah, the one who is sent to help Israel. We understand the one who is was sent to help all people come to God. And thinking back on the history of Israel, she says this in verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever, she, as a Jew, would trace her ancestry back to Abraham. Ancestry.com. That's what she had. Abraham. Every Jew goes back to Abraham. I don't know where you come from. People ask me, do you want to know your ancestry? I'm like, no way do I want to know where the Burroughs clan came from. I have an idea from folklore and mythology. It's not good. Don't want to know. So some people evidently wanted to know because I find out from time to time. I have people who are in my past who look me up. We're related. I did not know that. Did not want to. One more person who wants something for Christmas. Don't need that at all. So, ancestry back to Abraham. And and for the Jew, Abraham, it was through him that salvation would come. Now, we understand as followers of Christ and the world we live in that all of salvation is traced back in essence to Abraham in the sense that God promised he would save the world through him. But she recognizes God working. And this is the important part. She sees God always at work from the time of Abraham all the way up into her. He is working through her and will continue to work through her and through her child. She praises God for what he's done and what he's doing. And she recognizes that in the world in which they live, while Rome is this unbelievable power that will actually seek to put her child to death and all his followers at some point. She knows something so important that you and I need to realize that no person, authority, or condition is more powerful than God. That is the song of Mary. To be the song of your life. No matter where you are in your life, there's no situation more powerful than God. There's no person in your life who's oppressing you more powerful than God. There's no authority that you face more powerful than God. He always works through everything, through the humblest of servants, to overcome Herod, Caiaphas, Pilate, the Roman Empire. He always overcomes. Now I know but it's easy for us to think, well, but my situation's different. My situation is unique, and I get that. But Mary had a pretty unique situation too. She was a virgin, going to give birth to the Messiah. Didn't know if anyone would believe her. That's pretty unique. Please understand that regardless of the uniqueness of your situation, God is always aware of it. He's always aware of exactly who you are and what's going on in your life. And he's working in your life, especially if you follow him. I get on social media some just to see what's going on, to kind of keep up a little bit. And uh, a little bit with the way sometimes Christians think. I have a lot of friends who are Christians, all although they're very shallow. And I see some just weird things posted. I'm like, oh my goodness, I saw something the other day. Someone was just talking about the things that happened. That God, if you'll do this, God is that. If you do this, God is that. And then I saw this, and it just drove me nuts. When you believe, God works, is what they wrote. And I thought, that's just dumb. That's, that's pagan. That's what pagans did. Hey, you do all these things, you'll force God's hand. That comes from, by the way, prosperity gospel theology. That God responds to what you do. God is always working in your life. Even if you're not a believer, God is always working. Let I me mean, share this with you. The only reason you can believe is because God's working. <laughs> if God didn't work till you believe, God would never do anything. We only believe because God's working. And here's what happens in my life as a follower of Jesus. My believing allows me to see God at work. I don't know that I always want to admit that I don't always agree with what God's doing in my life all the time. I kind of wish sometimes he'd do things differently. But he's always working in in my life. And And he's always working the things that need to be done. I don't care how unique your situation is. I don't care what you're facing. God's working in your life. He knows what's going on. And when we come to Christ and we trust Christ, it's a beautiful thing. So here's the thing I want you to see. Because of the birth of Jesus... You can trust and praise God in Jesus, and you can have a song. You know what Christmas says? God sent Jesus. Because of Jesus, no matter what's happening in my life, I can trust God. I can praise God in Christ. I can do that. You can do that regardless of where you are. Listen, I know some of you are are not where you want to be. And some of you are thinking, God, I really don't like being where I am right now. Why am I here? I get that. But you've got to trust that God's going to take you where he wants you to be. The way he wants to get there. And you've got to let go and quit trying to, you know, drive that car. And to quote that great theologian, you know, Karen, Jesus, take the wheel. You know? <laughs> Just kidding. Don't do that. Stupid. You've got to let God in Christ take you where he wants you to be. You know, all along the way, what you get to do is you praise him. Is it difficult? Sometimes. Does it not make sense to the world we live in? Yeah, that's true. And if you're not a follower of Christ, you're probably not going to understand that. And that seems silly to you. But I'm a follower of Jesus. And I'm telling you, it's really the only thing that makes sense in life. Is that by trusting Christ, I know I can praise God in all the circumstances that come my way. I can have a song like Mary, and at Christmas, I'm reminded of that beautiful song. See, at Christmas, it's easy to praise God for who He is, what He did, and what He does. Now, we've got to praise him all of our life in all circumstances. And we can do it in Christ. Some of you aren't followers of Jesus. It's hard to praise God if you don't follow Jesus. The birth of Christ made it possible for you to come. Jesus came into this world so you could trust him to be your Savior and give your life to him. It doesn't make your problems go away. It doesn't make life get easy. It means it gives you the Lord as your savior and you can trust him. You have someone to turn to. You have an eternity to look forward to. And even in the most difficult situations, you can praise him. That can be your song. For some of you who are followers of Jesus, you may be having a hard time praising him right now. Why is that? Why are you struggling to praise God? Is it because you are trying to control your life instead of letting the Lord lead you in your life. Maybe today you need to renew your relationship with him, to trust him. Some of us are gonna stand here in a minute. Maybe you wanna come and pray with one of us and pray that God give you the strength that you can praise him because it's hard in life and I know it's hard. So sometimes you gotta begin by saying, God, help me praise you because now it's hard to praise you. We'll pray with you through that. Some of you, if you want to give your life to Christ, we will. If you want to pray for someone you love, we will. If you want to join our church, you can. But I don't know what you need to do today. I really don't. I can't tell you. But here's what I hope for you. That when you walk out of this place today, just like Mary, I pray that you will have a song. Father, we lift up the name of Jesus. We honor you and glorify you and praise you. In the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. For sending Jesus to be our Savior. For giving us a reason to celebrate. For giving us a reason to praise you. And to honor you. And indeed, Father, to have a song. Regardless of our circumstances. Regardless of how hard it is. Regardless of where we find ourselves. We can still praise you in Christ. And so we ask that you help us to do that this day. For your glory. In Christ's name. Just stand and we'll preach.